Lord, we're grateful for this day, not just because it's a beautiful day, but it's because you, Lord Jesus Christ, conquered death and speaks into our lives in various ways, in the ways that we can receive you and understand. I pray that you would do that among each and every one of us this morning, that you would take our minds and think through them, take my lips and speak through them, take our wills and bend them to yours, and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. I wonder, has there ever been a time in your life when you've been really lost? I mean, really lost. Kimmy and I, one time, we were backpacking in the Shenandoah National Forest before kids, and, you know, we, we got off the trail, we didn't see any trail markers, and for about 20 minutes, a half hour, we, didn't, we, we, we couldn't figure out the map and the compass, but we finally got back on, it was no big deal, you know, Gene was just inept in reading the map and the compass, you know, uh, but I'm talking about really lost, without a map, without a compass, like being out on Lake Erie with a thick fog, and you don't know where north, south, east, or west is. Anybody who's been in the Navy knows this. You know, you've been out in the ocean, and there's a thick fog, and it's like pea soup sailing through the fog. It's hopeless, it seems, at times. The most lost I've ever been, honestly, was when I was Christmas shopping, of all things. Uh, uh, we live in Hughesville, Maryland, and the closest mall to us was an hour away in Annapolis, and I had to buy Kimmy a, a Christmas present. And I had this used copper color, ugly as sin, Nissan pickup truck, 1984, reliable truck as could be. I loved it. I just didn't like the color of it, but it stuck out in parking lots. You could see it a mile away. So I, I parked my truck, and I went in, and I found the perfect gift for my, my new wife. We were freshly married, and I walk out, having carried this gift, and I couldn't find my truck, and I searched for an hour. I'd never been in such a big mall before. I couldn't believe it, you know. And of all the cars that someone would steal, it'd be this ugly pickup truck of mine, you know. But I, I was convinced someone stole it. it. It's gone. So after an hour, I said, give myself an hour. I walked all around these parking lots, massive cars, couldn't find it. Walked back to the security, and I knew something was fishy, when I asked the guy, you know, I think my truck's been stolen, he said, are you sure you looked in the right lot? <laughs> I said, yeah, I looked in the right lot. I, I parked it right by J.C. Penney. He said, no, this is Sears. <laughs> oh, because the mall was so big, I just got discombobulated. I didn't know where it was from my right hand and my left. Never felt so stupid. My father spoke in the 1950s of being in London, and the fog just kind of rolls in. And he said, I know what it meant when it was like fog, thick as pea soup. My friends, we last left Mary and the other Mary, Joseph's mother, Joseph's mother. We don't know exactly who this woman is, but she know, we know it from Matthew's, from the reading last Friday, that they were the last two at the tomb as it was sealed, as it was, the stone was rolled. They were done with what they could do on the Sabbath. 
And they're going to come back Sunday morning to finish the task at hand, which is to prepare the body for burial. Because the Jews were the only culture that, that viewed, had a high view of the body, so they would seal it and layer it with spices so that it would decompose slowly, not fast like the pagans. And so Joseph of Arimathea made sure the stone got rolled to the tomb to keep animals or grave robbers away from Jesus. And these people are in a fog. They can't believe that the master has been killed and that our movement is over. And we heard on Good Friday and yesterday and Holy Saturday that the leadership requested a posting of the guards so that his followers, in their words, Matthew's Gospel, steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. For the last fraud will be worse from the first. As if they were saying, Pilate, we need a favor from you. The last thing we need is an empty tomb, so help us out. And so Pilate, in verse 65 of chapter 27, says, You have a guard of soldiers. Go. Make it secure as you can. You can hear the kind of condescension that he has. He's dead. Aren't, aren't you guys through with this yet? Go ahead. Knock yourself out. So they sealed the stone and posted the guard. So here's our situation in this fog that the disciples that are in hiding and the women have. We have a sealed tomb. We have terrified disciples that are hiding. And we have opponents making sure that the body won't be taken. So it's early Sunday morning. Before, right before the dawn, which if you, you look at the internet, you can find all kinds of interesting things, by the way. Jerusalem sunrise at this time is about 5.45, 6 a.m. So it's that early in the morning. The two Marys get up to go back. And what's happening to Jesus' body? Well, it's glorified. The whole molecular structure has changed. And not only is a glorified body able to move a thousand miles in an instant, it can move through solid objects as well as we're going to see here in a second. Even locked doors. And we'll look at that not only today, but throughout the Easter season. Because you see, the stone is not moved to let Jesus out. The stone has been moved so the disciples can look in. I encourage you, invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Matthew 28. If you're visiting with us this morning, you can see it in the back of your bulletin. For Sunday's arrived. It's the first day of the week. And we need to read this text as if we're reading it for the first time. Not the umpteenth time. And so the woman come back to the tomb to finish the task of covering the body with spices which would really begin to stink right now. It's been a couple days since Jesus died, and his body would really be getting to be decomposed. And that's what they expected to find. But in verse 2 of 28, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Don't miss the drama here. The angel rolls back the stone and sits on it. Don't tell me the Bible's boring. 
You know, I want to look at the angel and go, show off. You know? Come on, man. And he's shown, it says, his clothing is a dazzling white, and the guards trembled and fainted. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I want to say, really? Don't be afraid? I mean, these professional soldiers, these are Romans, all right? The Roman legion knew about death. They were well-trained in combat. These two guards probably went on Saturday and said, this is cake duty, guys. We're guarding a dead guy. You know? Nothing's going to happen. You take a nap. I'll keep watch. I mean, I'm sure they expected nothing. So they faint. And he says, do not be afraid. And I want to say, really? Every time the angels appear throughout the full counsel of God, what do they say? Do not be afraid. Why? They're terrifying. We would look at them and say, you, we, would, we would be frozen in fear because we've never seen such beauty and such holiness next to we, we Often we confuse them with God. And so he starts to speak. And it's important that we pay attention. Verse 6, he says, listen, he is not here. Well, that's obvious. He is risen. That's not so obvious. And then he goes on to tell them, come, see the place where he lay. And then he gives them instructions to go and tell the friends. But you know, Mary Magdalene she doesn't hear that. She's lost in the fog. The light bulbs have not gone off for her yet. How do I know that? In your Bibles, turn to John's Gospel, chapter 20. As she's running back to the disciples, hurry now, she's running. We don't want to keep her waiting. All right. Mary, chapter 20, verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's John, the author, that's his description of himself. John is approximately 17, 18, 19 years old. You're going to love This is going to get real good, friends. Watch this. This is good. And so John is the one who's writing. He's the author of this biography. And she says, from out of the fog, notice what she says. She says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Time out. Is that what the angel said to her? No. He said, for he is not here. He is risen. Go tell his boys. And she didn't hear the second part. All she knew is that someone, he's not there, and she thinks some grave robber has come. They've taken him, whoever they are. Well, that's all that Peter and John needed to hear. Look at verse 3 and 4 of chapter 20 of John's gospel. So, now remember, John is writing this, and every guy will understand this. This is great. Watch this. All right. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
the young buck wants all of us to know he beat the old dude to the tomb. Because he's got the pen, and he can write whatever he wants. Isn't that great? Now, don't tell me the Christian life's not fun. It's the abundant life that some of you are looking for this morning. Because he's just giving smack talk to Peter right now. And it's just great. You know, Peter is probably anywhere between his upper 20s and mid-30s. But it's important to John that you and I know that he beat Peter to the tomb. Just saying, I beat him. So verse 5, John stoops into the tomb and he saw, the text says, the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. That word saw is the Greek word blepo. It's the type of seeing, it's a glance. It's what we do when we're driving our car at a four-way stop sign. We stop, we look left, we look right, the Brits look right, and then left, and then we go, right? That's what blepo means, but he did not go in. I don't blame him for not going in. It's kind of creepy. It's dark, and he recognizes that the body's not there. And then he hears the footsteps behind him. Here comes <sighs> old iron lungs Peter, you know? And like John Wayne, he comes in just to get out of my way, son. And he just goes right in. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place all by itself. It's interesting. Peter looks in there, and that's not, he saw the linen cloth lying there. That's not blepo, that is theoreo, which means to examine, to perceive, to do some research. Peter's in there just looking around, and all right, he's not here. What did Peter see? Well, don't miss it, verse 8. John, then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, just in case you didn't know. All right. All right. Isn't that great? I love that. Went in, and he saw, and he believed. This saw is not blepo. This saw is not theoreo. This is the Greek word idem. He saw, and he believed. The light bulbs have gone off. The fog has been lifted for young John. Jesus has done exactly as he said he would do. And the grave clothes are lying there in such a fashion that it's indistinguishable that Jesus just left. He's got a glorified body. The late Merrill Tenney, New Testament scholar at Wheaton College, in his masterful book, The Reality of the Resurrection, describes what Peter and John saw. He says, quote, there's a strong hint that the clothes were not folded as if Jesus had unwound them and then deposited them into two neat piles on the shelf. The word used here to describe the face cloth does not connote a flat-folded, square-like table napkin, but rather like a ball of cloth bearing the appearance of being rolled around an object no longer there. What would that object be? A head? no longer there. The wrappings are in the position where his body would have been laid, 
the shape of a body, but these wrappings have air in them. How? See, had the body been stolen, it never would have happened that way. It, it, the, the grave robbers wouldn't have been able to wrap it like this. But you see, a glorified body doesn't disturb the wrappings. It just departs. Now it's getting real good. And I love it. Because John gets it. Jesus is going to depart on his terms. And Jesus, for the next 40 days, will encounter his friends and his followers so that they can know all the scriptures are fulfilled in him. And so over the next 40 days, he appears to his disciples. He appears on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. He eats fish. By the way, dead people don't eat fish. Right? He appears to his disciples and eats fish with them. He appears to 500, and he does it all the time. He just kind of shows up. Not shocking, just revealing people. I'm sure it's kind of shocking. You know, I'm, I'm sure you're sitting there eating, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears. You know? Kimmy's gotten to the habit and the hobby of scaring me in our empty nest years. I'll be brushing my teeth, and she'll jump out and say, Ah! And I'm just, and I'll jump. And I'll go, would you stop that? You know? I hate it. Jesus doesn't do that to us. You see, he's not going to throw a rock through the window to get your attention. He's going to reveal himself in ordinary ways, and for some of you, he's revealing himself to you right now. And I love that about Jesus. You see, he shows up in very simple ways because he is risen. It's true, and it makes all the difference in the world. Notice it makes all the difference in the world because there's a guy named Thomas in John's Gospel who doesn't get it. If you keep reading in John's Gospel, verse 19, John records for us, On the evening of that day, that's Resurrection Sunday, the first day of the weeks, the door being locked. Why are they locked? Well, they're, they're still terrified. Even though he's raised from the dead, the, the leaders, if they find out, they could kill him. It's as if today ISIS were on your tail. And if ISIS were on your tail, you would lock your doors. And so the doors are locked, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears to them and stood among them and said, Peace, be with you. That's how he arrives. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. But there's one of the disciples who's not there. His name is Thomas, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And Thomas doesn't buy their story. Thomas is like, no, unless I see the scars in his hands and in his side, I'm not going to believe. Some of you are like that. Some of you, like, you know, I need to see. Well, I'm glad you're here. Jesus is going to show himself to you if you will allow yourself to have him demonstrate himself to you. Because what's happening here, he says to Thomas and appears just like he did to them eight days earlier. And what does he say to Thomas? 
Peace be with you. Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. See my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas says the confession of every authentic, real Christian. My Lord, my God. Two things. My Lord, which means my ruler, my king, my boss. I will do whatever you tell me to do. And my God, I worship you. And I love you. That's exactly what our pattern of discipleship is. And from that time forward, these 11 guys go from hiding in their closet to calling the whole Roman Empire to come and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Because the resurrected Jesus does that to a life. And, it, and, and Jesus says something to Thomas that's important for every one of us on 2017. He says, Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Believe me again. You see, the light bulb goes off. The fog is lifted. I get it. It's true. You see, I don't have to see in order to believe. The definition of faith in the Bible is the faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And so therefore, my friends, this text speaks to every single one of us this day. Every single one of us, no matter where we are in our journey in the Lord, from skepticism to on fire for God faith, no matter where you are, you will find yourself in, the, in one of these characters in this Easter cast drama this morning. Because so many in our, in our culture would call themselves Christians, and yet, can they say, my Lord, my God? Can you say, my Lord, my God? Can you say, I love you, Father, Holy Spirit, Jesus? Because it's a love relationship he wants. He doesn't want religion. Those are the professional Pharisees and Sadducees. He doesn't want that. He wants a relationship with you because he designed you. He delights in you and wants to empower you by the Holy Spirit to live the life you've been called to live. Because when you love the Lord like Thomas, you find yourself giving him all your life. And you find yourself desiring to pray, desiring to be in the Word and to know him better. Not perfectly. None of these things merit our salvation, but if we would call ourselves Christian, we pray. How was your prayer life this week? How was your time in the Word this week? My Lord, my God spurs us on and helps us to see it's not on our merit, it's on Jesus' merit upon the cross, and he proved it by the resurrection. So many people would call themselves Christian, but yet Sunday morning attendance is just an option among many, many things you could be doing. It's not that certain simple church attendance makes anyone a Christian any more than a presence in a, in a garage makes you a car. But when you love the Lord, you find yourself wanting to be with these people. For these are the very people Jesus died for. And yes, you find yourself wanting to be with people who aren't in the least bit like you. 
They, they don't look like you, though some do. They don't think like you, though some do. They don't have the same interests as you, but some do. They didn't vote like you did, although some did. But at Christ Church, we are slackers and workaholics. We are engineers, lawyers, businessmen, and tradesmen, and women too. Teachers, stay-at-home moms, dads. But what unites us, though this diverse population, is we desire to follow Jesus together. That's the church. And so we desire to be together on Sunday mornings, to hear the word, to pray, to receive the Lord's Supper, to, to encourage one another and do acts of mercy. All those things happen on Sundays. You want to miss out on that? Man, we have three services. Come. See what you're missing? This text speaks to every one of us this morning. So where are you among the drama? Are you... Like the disciples and the women after seeing the risen Jesus, just warm to the heart as I shouted obnoxiously, Alleluia, he is risen. You've walked the way of the cross since last Sunday. You're so encouraged. Praise God. Oh, our lives get foggy, don't they, at times. The fog rolls in every now and then, but... Keep praying, keep serving, keep loving. Because we understand we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but it doesn't remain alone. We follow and we love. Maybe you're a Thomas and you need some proof. Really, you know, I keep God at arm's length, but I need some more proof. Well, then man up and do some research. You know, go on a journey. Go see the cross of Christ. It's at Crocker Park. Shows tomorrow at 12.15, 3.30, and 6. It's the story of Lee Strobel. He was a Chicago Tribune journalist, atheist, whose wife came to faith in Christ, and it ticked him off. The woman that he loved, the woman that he adored, went nuts. And he said, I'm going to set out to prove this wrong. So he did his research interviewed umpteen number of scholars, medical professionals, about the reality of the resurrection. And he came to the conclusion, it's true. It's true. If you don't have time to go see the movie, you can go to any bookstore. The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. Read it. Phenomenal. Phenomenal read. That's for you Thomases out there. But my fervent desire is if you're a Thomas this morning, go on a pilgrimage be intellectually honest with yourself and your family and me and engage your mind and engage your heart and then act upon what you believe. And if you have any questions, after every service, I stand right there and you have the right to ask me any question, you have a comment, you have a complaint. Okay? You know? We're a learning community here. This is what we do. You know, so no matter where you are in your journey, you're welcome to ask questions because there's no defense like the truth. Come ask. Maybe you're one of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Maybe you're one of those people who are moralists like the Pharisees who are counting on their good works, taking them to heaven. Or like the Sadducees who take the scripture and they pour their own meaning 
into the vocabulary of the words, even though they're saying the same words as the Pharisees. The results are the same. They're both keeping the Lord at arm's length, clothed in religion. Is that you? You know, maybe you come every week, and you, if I were to ask you why you get into my heaven, you, you put it back on your works. Oh, my friends, that's a million miles away from the good news of the gospel. How sure, how good do you have to be in order to earn your salvation? Are you sure about that? If being good is good enough to go to heaven, why did Jesus have to die? You ever thought about that? There wouldn't have been a good Friday if we could have been good enough on our own. God sent himself and his son. And when you try to be good enough on your own outside of Christ, what ends up happening is you never are sure, are you? You, you don't have the true freedom that the believer has. You don't have the true purpose that the believer has. Or last, are you one of the crowd? They shouted, crucify him. They saw him dead, and they went back to life as normal. You know, the suburban Jerusalem life, full of fun, family, friends, falling in love, food, and fitness. <laughs> Sound familiar? Do everything else, but yeah, I believe that, kind of, sort of. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Well, those are all good things. But here's what we do. In our own sinfulness, we all shake our fist at God and his world and take in his good gifts and worship the gifts over the giver of these gifts. And ultimately, you know they're unsatisfying. And the good news is God loves us and he made us and designed us and he is just and he must act justly in his word and in his world, which is good news, because how I treat you matters to God. How you treat me matters to God. How we treat others matters to God. And the reality is, we don't treat others well all the time, do we? See, we're all rebels to the core, and the reality is, the Bible calls that sin, and Jesus Christ died on the cross for all our sins, those we've known and those we, haven't, we don't even know about. And when God, we see him loving us so, sending his son to die the death that we deserve so we can live the life we didn't deserve, that's grace. And that's what captures God. He looks at our problem and says, there has to be justice. And he makes our situation just on Jesus' work upon the cross. And the resurrection says, come to me. I did it all for you. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It doesn't remain alone. We follow him. In closing, in the movie Saving Private Ryan, Captain Miller's squad of soldiers was sent to find Private James Francis Ryan in the European theater because all his brothers had been killed in combat. And the general says, go get him. Find him and bring him home. We can't lose one more. And so the squad goes 
And in the final scene, Captain Miller is dying on the bridge, grabs hold of Private Ryan's coat and says, earn this. And the movie portrays a life for the next 50 years tormented by a man wondering, is he, has he been good enough for the sacrifice of Captain Miller and his men in saving me? Jesus looks at every single one of us and says, you don't have to earn this. I've done it for you. Place your trust in me alone. And that will work on Good Friday because on Easter Sunday it's true. I'm going to close in a prayer as we contemplate it is finished for us, the liberating reality that I can look at my sin and recognize it's been taken care of by Jesus Christ upon the cross and the risen Jesus changes it all. I want to encourage you to consider coming, joining us on Sunday nights beginning next week. I'm going to pray a prayer of renewal. Maybe you've received Christ as your Savior and Lord. Maybe you've never done it before. We're going to pray a prayer, and I'm asking you to join me in it. And next Sunday night at 6 o'clock to 7.30, we're going to talk about, together as part of our Avon Lake Group home group, what does it mean to be a 21st century follower of Jesus? What does it mean that we trust the Bible as God's word? What does it mean to live a praying life? What is it, why bother with the church? And we're going to just discuss that on Sunday nights for three weeks. We're titling that, Taking the Message Home. And I encourage you to take out that communication card that's in the seat in front of you and fill out your name and your email address and put a check by your name so we know you prayed that prayer with us. And we'll get in touch with you later on this week. And we'd love you to have you join us at my house next week, 6 o'clock. Because, my friends, for some of you, the fog's lifted. For some of you, the light bulb's gone off. It's true. He's risen. And I implore you to pray with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have sinned against you in my thoughts, in my words, and in my deeds. For what I've done and what I've left undone. And I want forgiveness for all my sins. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. And I believe that Jesus rose again. I give you my life to do with as you wish. Empower me right now by the Holy Spirit to live the satisfying life that you've designed for me. All this I ask in Jesus' name and all God's people say, Amen.